This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, today will be a packed program. Uh, we've got a lot for you. You will not be disappointed. Uh, first up, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene to talk about her new book. In the second half of the show, Aaron Cariotti, psychiatrist, bioethicist, one of the lead defendants in Biden versus Missouri is here with us to give an update on what's going on there and how things are changing. Uh, of course, uh, Marjorie is the U.S. Congresswoman from the 14th District of Georgia. Her new book is MTG, which she says she wrote to, quote, set the record straight, which is exactly where I want to start our conversation to hear more about uh, what her thoughts are, about how she's portrayed. There's so much we could talk about, uh, but we'll be with her for a little while, and I'll be watching you all on the restream to uh, see if there are any questions that pop up there, so stay with us. Also, of course, on the Rumble Rants, we'll be back with Marjorie Taylor Greene after this. Our laws, as it pertain to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need. But if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z -Pak. The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites, to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC to get 10% off today. Just click on that link. Of course, I misspoke. Aaron Cariotti is the plaintiff in the Missouri, Missouri versus Biden case, which is now before the United States Supreme Court. We'll hear an update on that. But first, U.S. Congresswoman from the 14th District of Georgia. Really interesting story. And she writes about it in her book, MTJ, oops, MTG, which she said, as I told you, is to set the record straight. You can read her story there. It is available now from all the usual outlets. Give her a like and a good review. Marjorie Taylor Greene, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So when you say you want to set the record straight, what does that mean? 
Well, when I entered Congress in January of 2021, the media created a character of me that doesn't exist. And then they proceeded to sell that character across the national media, all across America and the entire world. And I wrote this book, MTG, to give people an understanding of who I really am, my words, my policies, my beliefs, and also the stories behind the headlines um, that has, has mischaracterized me. I also go into the issues that I think people really need to know about Congress, uh, basically peeling back the curtain and exposing why we see our federal government as such a failure. And I think people will love reading it, and I hope they pick up a copy um, and read it over the holidays. Can you give us some hints on what you're exposing? I, I know I don't want to give uh, give the milk, you know, to give the whole story away for free. We want them to buy the book, but but I give give us a give us a taste. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been intrigued uh, watching leading into the to the program today. Uh, your your talks and and the the people you've interviewed about COVID. Uh, I have a whole chapter called COVID Lies and Lessons. Um, I'm not a doctor, obviously. But I was one of those that was um, didn't didn't believe in the vaccines. I didn't get vaccinated. I fought very hard against the mandates and the mask and the shutdowns as a member of Congress. And I write about that in my book. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, even fined me over one hundred thousand dollars because I refused to wear the mask on the House floor. And the reason why I did that is I truly believe if members of Congress don't actually fight with actions. Uh, then people at home, you know, moms, dads, kids in school, uh, and, and many others, they are not able to stand up to, to the tyrannical government that we saw in place during COVID. I also serve as a member on the COVID Select Committee. Um, this committee has a lot of doctors on it, and I've requested over and over again to investigate the vaccines because there's been over a million reports on the VAERS system. And I believe people when they say they've suffered terrible vaccine injuries. And I believe people when they say they've lost family members due to the vaccines. And I think it's our duty in Congress to investigate this and hold people accountable. Well, unfortunately, our committee has not done any investigations into the vaccines. And so recently I took it upon myself to hold my own hearing. Uh, and that just happened a few, a few weeks ago. And a lot of people watched it. We had uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. Biss, and I was particularly intrigued listening to Dr. Biss explain the serious problems for women with menstrual cycles, um, miscarriages, pregnancies, and so forth. But this is the type of thing I write about in my book, and this is the type of work I'm very interested in doing as a member of Congress. Yeah, the the uh, I just want to make a little quick sidebar comment about the menstrual cycle changes with the vaccine. No, there's no doubt that that is happening. What has happened though, uh, and I am absolutely the reason I'm I'm speaking about this uh, because I was guilty of this. Uh, Naomi Wolf came on our program and was talking about this, and I went, Naomi, menstrual cycles get they it make everything every time I give somebody a medication, every time I get sick, menstrual right? No, come on, no, it's. That is the most sexist, insensitive, pathetic point of view, and that was my that was my point of view. So I made her come back, and I apologized to her. I cannot apologize enough for being so pathetically sexist. I apologize to you as a woman, and the fact is that she 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 had to explain to me that not only is it miserable and frightening, but some some populations actually it changes 
their their um, their reproductive practices and whether they can get pregnant or not and you know and there's many different sort of practices that women follow in different religious and cultural settings that I didn't even contemplate and it, it, again it's the very uh, Eurocentric male pathetic point of view to just go oh, oh menstrual menstrual periods no, no no big deal no big deal nothing to see here so thank you for for looking into that I just had to fall on my sword yeah. again because it's so pathetic well good on you uh, so pathetic That's good. I think. I think apologies yeah. are great. I've had to apologize uh, before, uh, especially publicly on the main stage. I think people people have seen that for me, and I don't think anything's wrong with it. I think what's important is that we continue to pursue the truth, and we certainly need that today in America. And, and that's part of my book, is looking for the truth, uh, but most of all, wanting to hold our government accountable. You know, people have labeled me as far right, as extremist. Uh, if you really wanted to label me, the best label for me is American. And I don't apologize for loving our country and, and, and wanting to uphold our laws and our constitution and our values. And I think that's important. Uh, I ran for Congress in 2020, of course, as a Republican, but I also ran for Congress being open about my anger at the Republican Party. Um, you know, we know who the Democrats are. We know their policies and we're watching them in action with the Biden administration. We've got a wide open border and I serve on the Homeland Security Committee. And I've heard the most heartbreaking stories, parents uh, coming in, talking about their children being murdered by fentanyl, uh, the horrible stories of people losing family members um, from illegal alien crime. Uh, cartel members, the awful, awful stories of uh, child sex trafficking. And these are the things that shouldn't be happening in America. But I, I ran for Congress because I blamed Republicans. I'm tired of Republicans just talking the talk on the campaign trail and on the news, but unwilling to take the necessary action to stop the terrible things happening in our country. Um, not only the wide open border, but also our debilitating over $33 trillion in debt that should not exist. So these are the kind of stories I tell in my book. And, and I think people will be interested to understand more about who I am. And, and, and so Margie, th this is where I'm kind of intrigued, which is you're a newcomer. I, I've seen what, you know, what they do to the, what the press does to people. They, they turn everybody into cartoon figures and they never report substance. They report these weird I remember I was in the White House once in a in a symposium all day, and uh, Trump unexpectedly come in at came at the end and made some off the hand comments, and they didn't report anything about this great symposium and reported his kind of off the cuff statements. And I thought, oh my God, you, I can't trust anything that comes out of this uh, the, the press. It's so crazy. But that was years ago, and it's gotten only worse since then. And so my question is, when did this sort of passion come to you? I mean, you're a relative newcomer. You, I've sort of read your career paths, and how did how did you decide to run for Congress? And when did freedom and truth become such important things to you? Well, it came it came uh, kind of came across starting in like 2017, 2018. Of course, I never considered running for public office. I never wanted to be in the government. I ran a successful family uh, construction business and another small business. Um, it really thoroughly enjoyed the best job I've ever had raising my children as a mother. And my kids are grown up now. And um, it was mm. the Republican failure under President Trump's administration when we held the House and 
They did not repeal Obamacare, did nothing about it. Um, they didn't do anything to fund the wall and, and the true border security we needed. But, but Marjorie, it sounds like you, you already had some very, some very, very strong feelings. And what, what, tell me more about that. I don't get a sense of where that, because you, you, you know, you're not, you have a great deal of clarity about what your positions are, real clarity. And I feel like you came to Congress with that. We're, we're, oh, not yeah, everyone has absolutely. those kinds of feelings. And what, what was going? Were you were you always somebody that argued and debated? Were you someone that oh. uh, came from a political family? I mean, how had that happen? No, not at all. Um, as a matter of fact, politics wasn't something I really discussed um, openly. And but being a business owner, I think that's I think that's where it comes from. Is growing up in a family business, listening to my parents uh, talk about the business problems issues they were dealing with, the economy at the dinner table. I, I learned a lot, but also running the business. You know, as a business owner, you have to sign the paychecks that that help people uh, keep a roof over their head and feed their children and their family. Uh, we have to solve the problems and, and no one's going to fix it for us. We have to fix it. We're also accountable, uh, making sure that we make a profit. And if we make a loss, guess what? We go out of business. Uh, we also have to dot every I, cross every T when it comes to paying our taxes, following the laws, because the government is unforgiving to private businesses, yet the government is the one that, that seems to do everything wrong and never gets held accountable. So these are, these are things I think that um, I had strong beliefs in and I still do, but I believe it was really through, through running a business um, and, of course, having you know, difficult times. If you're a business owner, you're going to face hard times like the like that we did in 2008 and 2009. That was definitely a rough patch. And everyone else gets paid. And as the business owner, we get paid last. Uh, and that's just reality. And, and so I believe the federal government should look at the American people as their customer and provide excellent customer service and take care of the American people. And I also have beliefs. Uh, I truly believe that America is all of our home. As a mom, um, I believe our home should be safe, clean, orderly, well taken care of, and 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 we should provide the best home possible for everyone that lives in our home. And our gov our federal government doesn't do that for Americans. As a matter of fact, we're falling apart. Our windows and doors are wide open, and and people we don't know are, are coming in. And, and so these are the type of beliefs I had. I hope that clears things up a little bit about how I think and my background and why I'm so passionate about holding accountability to the federal government. You, you've mentioned your family and your kids and your, your family of origin a bit. How, how do they deal with these attacks that you face? It's been really tough. Uh, that, this wasn't something we ever expected. Uh, we're just really normal people and never expected to be exposed like this on the main stage. Uh, it was very hard uh, for my mom, um, hard hard for my children. They've been attacked by the left. Uh, terrible things have been said about them. And they're just innocent people. They haven't done anything wrong. But we're, we've learned to be pretty tough, and we learned we had to get tough really quick. And we know who we are. That's another good thing is these attacks haven't changed our regular life. We haven't lost friends. We haven't lost anything. And people that know us know that these are lies in the media. So that right there has been easy for us to get through it. 
One of the things we've been concerned about uh, is the regulatory capture, the, the cozy relationship between, for instance, the FDA and pharmaceutical companies. And, and in fact, I think you asked a very pointed question of the, was it the CDC director? Which which pharmacy was it? Your question: Which pharmacy company are you going to work for once you once you step down? Which which I, I will not soon forget that moment because I thought, yeah, that's the point. That's that's people need to understand that. So my question is: What do you worry about that? The way I do as a clinician and as somebody serving patients, what are the solutions? And then maybe on the t- well, let's say, let's deal with that first. Yes, I do. Actually, people don't realize the revolving door that goes between the government, uh, these powerful agencies into big, big pharma and other big industries, uh, such as the military industrial complex. They don't realize how cozy they truly are. And I believe that is the big, one of the biggest problems we face as Americans. Um, that means that these unelected bureaucrats like the CDC director are calling the shots, but they're doing so with their own self-interest in mind that is pursuing a career in order to make more money once they leave these big, powerful positions. Um, This is a true problem, but it's been a problem that has been going on for decades. And and we can't reiterate enough how bad we need to have reforms and good policies put in place um, and to protect our our government agencies, um, also to to make good decisions uh, for the American people. And you know, I'm uh, full disclosure. I'm an independent, and uh, and I first became aware of this how how cozy this is, and how significant this is in multiple, not just pharmaceutical, but in multiple industries, as you were as you reference. And it was RFK, the kind of my interview with him, that alerted me to all that. And I was sort of persuaded by that. You're a Republican. He is uh, sort of uh, maybe spoiling people's plans. I just wonder if you have any thoughts about his run for president. Oh, I'm, I think it's great. Um, you know, actually, I, I am a Republican, but it's funny how sometimes I find myself agreeing with people like RFK or even actually the squad. Sometimes we vote the same, which is really interesting and shocking mm-hmm. to people. I'm very against the mm-hmm. foreign war. Um, that's an area where I do mix in with people on the left and, and other independents, uh, surprisingly going against my own, largely against my own party. Um, and the, I write a whole chapter uh, in my book about why we shouldn't be funding all these foreign wars. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think RFK running for president is great. I love to hear new people's ideas. We need them in America, and and I think it's a good, healthy thing. My really, my last question, Susan. Do you have any questions while we're talking to MTG? No, uh, she's my wife is here running the, my board, and she is enraptured with uh, this interview. And my my question really is: Are are you optimistic about the future? Can you really? Are things too ossified? Are they too? You know, where do we solve these problems? How do we solve these problems? Is it really all at the ballot box or do the courts have to? We're, we're going to be talking to a physician, you know, that's taking something to the Supreme Court after we conclude our interview. Is is it all of the above? And if so, how do you stay optimistic? I think it's a great question. I'm always optimistic. And I got that from my father. Um, that's another thing I write about in, in my book is my father uh, died of cancer. It was melanoma. And he and my mom mm. were some of the people that were really afraid during COVID and they didn't go to the doctor and they stayed in their house. And his melanoma had turned into stage four 
And we found that out just a month before I I went to Washington as a new freshman member of Congress. Mm. And while I was being attacked by the mainstream media, um, my father was dying of cancer. And that was really the only thing I cared about. And I I write about that in my book. And it's it's a story that I really wanted to tell. Um, optimism is, was who he was. He was optimistic and tenacious and that's who I am. And I believe it's our duty to stay optimistic and hopeful for the future. It's our duty because we owe that to the following generations. And that's how we continue to do good work and, and make sure that our communities, our homes, our businesses and our government um, are good so that we can hand that over to the next generation. If we if we fall apart in sadness and despair, then we aren't able to do a good job and, and we owe it to our kids and our grandchildren. A couple last quick questions. Uh, when, when you've been the object of the press and you, the distortions that come with that, you learn very quickly how profoundly uh, biased and, and completely off base so many of the, of the stories are. What's your sort of advice to people? Should they believe nothing in the press? Do we have to or at least look at it jaundiced at pretty much everything? Or how do, how, do you, how do you get to the truth? How do you get to the news? Because nobody reports the news anymore. Oh, I, I, I agree. Actually, I, I think you should look for the truth. There's a lot of truth um, in the press, but there's a lot of lies too. Uh, I think the best thing you can do as, as, as a person in any situation is be very well-informed. Don't rely on one source. Look at multiple sources. Talk to people about it. Um, and a lot of people can kind of trust their own gut instincts. That's what I did during the COVID lockdowns as I went, wait a minute, let me look at the facts and the data that's coming out. Is this really killing everyone? Um, and come to find out, no, it wasn't. It was killing uh, just a select uh amount of people that had comorbidities and were largely unhealthy, mm-hmm. you know, so I think it's important to be well-informed, well-resourced, um, and, and don't just blindly believe the headlines because oftentimes they're very misleading. And I can assure you of that. And and you've gotten in some trouble for floating some things that you later said were sort of jokes or being sarcastic. How, how do you, a, a were, was that in fact the case? Did, did, a, did you fall victim to some sort of, uh, where you believed a headline or you believed a story that you shouldn't have believed, A. And B, how do we, <laughs> you know, how, how do you want people to understand, to see through these things as they come at you? Because I suspect they'll come at you. They'll, they'll just keep coming at you. They're going to. And so how do yeah, we how never, do we see through that? It never changes. Mm-hmm. It always keeps going. And yes, of course, I mean, at times I believe the wrong thing, uh, which led me to the wrong conclusions. And like I said in the beginning, I said, yeah, I've had to apologize before, too. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, we can't be right all the time and, and we aren't right for the rest of our lives. Uh, we're humans and we're going to make mistakes and, and believe the wrong things sometimes. But it's good to recognize the truth and move forward and say, say we're sorry when we need to. I think that's the right thing to do and it's the right way to treat one another. Um, but the other thing is, is, is I don't think the hits are going to stop uh, with me. They keep coming and they keep coming on a frequent basis. Um, so what I do is I do the job that my constituents elected me to do. And I stay to my promises that I promised them. And I go to sleep and I sleep good every single night. And the best thing is, is nothing changes in my pers- personal life with the people I love and the people that know me. And so I know yeah, I'm doing yeah. a good job and I just have to keep going. 
Yeah, just keep moving forward. That's all you can do. Okay, I promise my last question. So my last question really is, I, I love stories of Americans that are, are sitting, you know, they're, I guess uh, Sarah Palin had a story where she was sitting at a hockey game and was having a political discussion with somebody. I said, I could be gut of governor better than that guy that's governor. I could do a better job. And uh, Alexis de Tocqueville is a guy I refer to all the time. He wrote a book called Democracy in America in 1820. And his position, his assessment was that the reason democracy works so well in America is we had a practice of democracy. We practiced in our classrooms and in our townships, in our counties. But part of that practice is each of us getting involved in politics in some way. I'm wondering as you as somebody, I'm imagining that's your story. You went, I can do this and just did it. And and that to me is a, that's a uniquely, I, I, to me, it feels like a profoundly American story. And I'm very, very attracted to those stories when they, when they pop up. What's your advice to other people out there that are, that are frustrated and thinking, God, I could do a better job than the guy that's representing me right now? Well, number one, I would tell them I agree with them uh, because I'm there and, and I assure you there's a lot of better people that we, <laughs> we should have serving in, in Congress. And I think being passionate about what you believe is so important because it's your passion that makes you successful. I'm a very passionate person and, and people see that in me. Sometimes I get just enraptured in something or an issue. And but it also helps you work those long hours and get the job done. I would encourage people to run for public office, um, maybe not necessarily on a federal level, because believe me, that's a very difficult thing. But I always say local politics is almost more important than the federal government because it's the local level politics that truly affect your mm -hmm. life, like your local taxes, yep. your schools um, yep. and everything that you live in. So, yeah, get out there because I promise you, if you don't like the way things are being done in your city, your county or your state, um, yeah, you are better than the people that are there. Yeah, I, I agree with you so strongly. I remember when when there was a lot of consternation during uh, 2016 to 20, I remember looking out my window and going, boy, my trash services are great. My fire department is great. My police department is great. The streets are great. The businesses seem good. The, this, this city, which is the city of Pasadena, I'm so grateful for them having an excellent government that works well and extraordinary public services. We've got the best water and power probably in the state of California. Marjorie, I've, I've taken a lot of your time. It is MTG. Let's put the book up there again. I suggest you all support her and order it now. Uh, I'm assuming, Marjorie, we can just go over to Amazon and click like we do every, all, every day with for all of our all, everything else we buy these days. Um, That's right. And uh, Amazon, get the book. And the, there you I go. Amazon look forward to reading MTG. it. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. Pleasure. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for being here. So there we go, everybody. And I was watching the, I was watching your guys' comments on the restream and the uh, Rumble Rant. And I'm surprised. I thought you guys would have questions or that you, it's interesting to me that there was no attacks. There was, everything was very cordial. And to me, that means so much of what she deals with is just press generated. You would think people, you know, we have, I have lots of trolls in here attacking me all the time. And so I'm surprised. It's always so a weird lot to me. of very sort of, positive True. like What's i always that? leave this my, it's like whenever we had a no it's whenever we had what was her name uh carrie from arizona carrie uh oh man her name is carrie skipping lake. me carrie lake. carrie lake when she carrie was lake. on the show it's like i literally i went to my wife and other family members and i was like she is nothing like what the press portrays her as at all this is this was of just course. a nice woman of who course. complimented me on my new baby and she was just kind and sweet same thing with marjorie taylor green this she's like this is the opposite of how she's portrayed by everyone so in the media. This, and so now I don't trust so anything this, they say. ladies and gentlemen, 
this lineage, Caleb is manifesting something called Gelman amnesia. Gelman amnesia is when you know the topic, like you know yourself. They wrote a story on me, and I realize it's vastly incorrect and a million miles from the truth. But then I read the paper and watch the news and assume everything else they report is is true. Right. When the fact is everything else they report is just as distorted. So keep that in mind. So there you go. Read your book. I mean, I think I think the book deserves a read to see if you um <laughs> Herb Green says he takes care of the trolls in here. Uh you know, deserves a read and see if you agree. Cause you know, I, I asked her about some of the things she had floated early on and she said, Yeah, wrong. Apologized. Uh, but of course, that's how you get to become a cartoon character. And once you are one, it, you, they don't let up. It just stays, 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 stays. And you have to keep moving forward. I'm still dealing with nonsense that somebody else, on three or four different stories that people have said about me that then went viral that had nothing to do with the truth. They come up all the time. All right, Dr. Kelly Victory is here with me. She will be here after the break with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. We're going to get into the Biden versus Missouri case after this. Susan and I have been looking for a nutrition-packed, great-tasting greens drink for a while. And then we tried our friends at Paleo Valley's Organic Super Greens, which is superior to what's out there on the market. Our friends at Paleo Valley, well, they think of everything, and they've created what's been called a magical green powerhouse. All three delicious varieties, pure unflavored, strawberry lemonade, and tropical, contain 23 certified organic antioxidant-rich superfoods, including the highest quality spirulina. It's also free of cereal grasses, gluten, grains, soy, and dairy, and no added sugars or artificial sweeteners. And what's more, it delivers digestive enzymes, polyphenols, which are believed to burn fat, and eight essential amino acids. Imagine the time, effort, and cost of trying to make this yourself. It's impossible. Head on over to drdrew.com slash paleovalley, and you will get 15% off your first order. All the great products they have there, 15% off at drdrew.com slash paleo, P-A-L-E-O. Thanksgiving is almost here, which means it's time for the best Genucel sale of the year. Just in time for the holidays, save over 60% off both of our personally tailored Genucel skincare packages at genucel.com slash drew so you can look your very best at all of your Thanksgiving gatherings. Look 10, 15, 20 years younger, guaranteed with the best natural skincare anywhere. Take advantage of Genucel's best sale of the year and say goodbye to fine lines, crow's feet, puffiness, and dark spots. The Genucel experience is like no other, but don't take my word for it. You will look and feel your absolute best or your money back, no questions asked. So for results in 12 hours or less, Genucel's immediate effects is included for free. Plus, if you go to genucel.com drew now, you'll get a free upgrade to priority shipping. That is genucel.com drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com drew. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And Dr. Victory, welcome. And of course, Aaron Cariotti. Aaron is a psychiatrist. He's a bioethicist. He was dismissed after a series of unfortunate events from his job where he was the chairman of the bioethics department for quite some time and a decorated professor of psychiatry. 
and uh, for raising his hand and saying, I don't think you have the medical, the scientific justification for vaccine mandates. Uh, and that led to a new career path for Aaron. So, Kelly, I will leave that to you to, uh, to explore. Terrific. Hey, Aaron, great to see you as always. I've got lots to Likewise, ask you about. Kelly. And we, 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 we want to start with, I, I know, let's uh, at least start with a quick update, if you can, on the case. I think uh, the Biden v. Uh, Missouri v. Biden case. Uh, give us an update on that. And then I want to take it from there because I've got lots of questions to ask you uh, on a broader scale. Sure. So very quickly for the listeners who aren't familiar with the case, this is a case that was filed against a dozen federal agencies by the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana, and they were joined by five private plaintiffs. I'm one of those five private plaintiffs. And we are alleging that the federal government has been unconstitutionally pressuring and coercing social media companies to censor disfavored content online on on the six major social media platforms. And where that case is at now is we had a hearing in the district court. The district court judge issued a preliminary injunction against the government, basically saying before the case even goes to trial, the plaintiffs have presented enough evidence that this unconstitutional censorship regime is actually happening. And we believe irreparable harm is going to be done to the plaintiffs and the people they're standing in for, the ordinary Americans who are posting information online and on social media. And so we can't wait for the year or two it's gonna take to finish this case. We have to intervene now with a cease and desist order to tell the federal government, you cannot do this anymore. You cannot pressure or coerce social media companies to censor content that you don't like because it challenges your favored public health policies or challenges other government policies. The government then appealed that preliminary injunction to the circuit court, the appellate court, the the Fifth Circuit had a three judge panel that unanimously upheld the injunction. So now we're four for four on federal judges saying that, yeah, plaintiffs have presented enough evidence even in this early phase of the case to establish that the government's likely engaging in unconstitutional behavior and the plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of these arguments. And so they upheld the injunction. The injunction is specifically against the White House, the CDC, the FBI, the Surgeon General, and a little known agency called CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, which I can tell our listeners more about in a few moments. It's very interesting to hear what CISA has been up to regarding uh, censorship of ordinary Americans online. The government didn't accept that now four federal judges had agreed on this injunction ruling, and they once again appealed to the highest level. So the case is currently at the Supreme Court. We will have oral arguments very soon, and we anticipate getting a ruling hopefully in the next couple of months from the Supreme Court. And I anticipate the Supreme Court will agree with the other four federal judges who have heard our arguments so far and uphold this injunction. That's not a final ruling in the case. That means that the case can now go to the trial phase. And the final ruling in the case will likely take, uh, as I said a moment ago, a year or two. But the preliminary injunction is very important because it will halt the unconstitutional censorship or at least put a major dent in it, you know, in the in the months leading up to the election, in the in the year or two it's going to take for this case to sort itself out and for us to get a final ruling also, which will probably likely happen 
at the level of the Supreme Court. The district court judge in this case, just to give our listeners some idea of sort of what's at stake here, the district court judge in this case said, if what plaintiffs allege is true, and by issuing the injunction, he indicated, yeah, looks like it's true. If what we allege is true, this is the worst violation of Americans' free speech rights in American history. That's not me saying that. That's not our lawyers saying that. It's a federal judge who's examined the evidence we've presented to the court and examined the defensive evidence that the government has presented, saying that this is the worst violation of free speech rights in American history. And the reason that that's the case is that this is sort of the first case of its kind of the digital age, the age where by pressuring social media companies to change their terms of service, to alter their algorithms, you can end up censoring hundreds of thousands of Americans, literally tens of millions of times on Twitter, now known as X or Facebook, or there was censorship even going on on WhatsApp, what, a platform that most people assume is a private text messaging app where you have um, Meta, which owns Facebook and also owns WhatsApp, controlling the number of times you could share certain articles or the number of times you could share certain links. So a link to the Dr. Drew show, when you know Aaron Cariotti is talking about vaccine mandates, you might try to share that with your intimate circle of family and friends on what looks like a private messaging app like WhatsApp and have the government basically leaning on the social media companies to limit your ability to share that with your close personal contacts. This is the level of algorithmic surveillance and control that this whole censorship regime has been operating at for the last several years, as it turns out. Terrific. Let, let me interject here, uh, just as a little bit of background. Um, I was actually the first co-defendant with Donald Trump in his case against Twitter, Facebook, and <laughs> YouTube for the same thing. Uh, I was egregiously censored, and when that lawsuit was filed, turns out Donald Trump has had a few other things on his plate lately. So yeah. uh, that lawsuit has, has been somewhat <laughs> sidelined. Um, but to summarize for viewers, again, and for the people who don't understand and claim, oh, well, those are private companies, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they can kick anybody off. It's, you know, they, they don't need to let you on the private companies, which is true. The, the crux of this case, my case with Donald Trump and yours ultimately, however, is that it is not legal for the U.S. government to farm exactly. out to another party that which they cannot legally do themselves. So the federal government cannot shut you down, cannot eliminate your right to free speech, and they can't farm it out to somebody else to do it on their behalf. Uh, in lay terms, that's really what these cases are, are about. Um, I, I want to change, just take a little different bite at this. It occurs to me that without that social media, let's talk about social media. So clearly the government is, is at fault here. The government is, is, is yep. committed a crime here. Um, that goes without saying. But so let's talk a little bit about the role of social media. Without social media, we would not find ourselves swimming in the cesspool in which we all find ourselves these days. Because without social media as a platform, this element of censorship, I would submit to you, could never have happened. The, the homeless, you know, psychotic Correct. guy on the median on La Cienega has free speech because he's not wedded to social media. 
No one can shut him down. He can pace around and say whatever the heck he wants and nobody will shut him down. You yeah. and I, because we rely on these platforms, are, however, we, we are subject to this, this type of censorship. So talk a little bit about your thoughts about how social media fits into this and perhaps a lot of other things with regard to the mean-spiritedness of trying to decimate people's yeah. characters and everything else. Yeah. No, so that's an excellent question. And it's a, it's a challenging problem, how to navigate this new information environment for ordinary individuals that are trying to get information on things. And one of the arguments in favor of censorship, I don't think it's a good argument, but it's the argument that the other side is making, is that there's so much disinformation out there and people don't know who to trust and what to trust, that we need some sort of government or multinational corporation-based intervention <laughs> by the companies or by our rulers to sort of help us have verified voices that everyone can trust. But the problem with that notion is always the question of, well, who decides what's true and what's false? Mm -hmm. This idea of giving a monopoly on what counts as truth to supposedly neutral individuals who are going to have their own interests at stake and they're gonna have their own cognitive and intellectual biases at work that's always a recipe for tyranny. That's always a recipe for the mm -hmm. abuse of power, that all of us having sufficient intellectual humility to believe that we don't know everything, that we have something to learn from most people, perhaps even something to learn from everyone if we listen carefully enough. And therefore, we cannot endow a government agency. We certainly can't endow the executives of a corporation that are going to be Influenced by profit Aaron, motives, I would just by say, all kinds of other considerations. I, I, I would just say, if if you want to look at circumstance, history is always a great teacher in these situations. Yeah. And the the most uh, uh, sort of highly developed uh, purveyor of what is and is not acceptable and truthful is the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and the and, and what's well, just yeah. it sounds funny, but it is actually exactly what they were doing. And the greatest distributor of dangerous disinformation and misinformation in history is Galileo. And so if you would like to suppress the Galileos of the future, uh, you do so at great harm to all. So really, this idea that they know best it has, has yeah. shown repeatedly through history and then you don't you can easily of course go to totalitarian states and maoist China, and there's just one example yeah. after the other but the but the the one that much you know they can easily point to is galileo but i wonder if you could talk about cisa and that recently discovered stanford group yeah so cisa is a little known government agency i like to ask people how many government agencies are there you know the average really well-informed <laughs> american could maybe name 10 or 12 there are 434 federal agencies paid for by our tax dollars. One of them was stood up in 2018 after the Trump election. And the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency is, was supposedly initially meant to protect us against cyber attacks and other attempts at foreign sabotage of our critical infrastructure. Okay, sounds like a sensible thing to try to protect us from. But their first director, Jen Easterly, decided that part of our critical infrastructure was our election infrastructure. And part of our election infrastructure was what she called our cognitive infrastructure. Now, this is the queen of all Orwellian government euph euphemisms. Right. You may be wondering, right. well, what is our cognitive infrastructure? <laughs> it's literally the thoughts inside of your head. 
right? That need to be protected from bad ideas, like the stuff that people talk about <laughs> on this show. So CISA very quickly pivoted to censorship. And basically they said, well, we can't tell the difference between foreign accounts and domestic accounts. So we're not going to draw that distinction any longer. But the Constitution draws that distinction, right? The Constitution actually doesn't prevent our government from censoring information and propaganda that comes from foreign lands or from foreign actors. But it does prevent the government from censoring American citizens. And CISA became the sort of the central clearinghouse or the nerve center through which all other federal censorship requests were funneled to the social media companies. So CISA is very central now in what the journalist Michael Schellenberger dubbed the censorship industrial complex. The other important pieces of the censorship industrial complex, you mentioned Stanford. So there are a number of government-organized NGOs. I call them quasi-private entities because they're, they're government-organized, they're government-funded. There's a revolving door. You talked about regulatory capture in the last segment. There's a revolving door between many of these uh, supposedly private nonprofits and the government. And <clears throat> these entities have basically been set up by CISA. And we now know that they were set up at the request of CISA. This came out just a week ago in the House Select Subcommittee's report on CISA, that they were set up in order for the government to basically outsource its censorship work to entities that looked non-governmental. But the Supreme Court has made it very clear that these kind of government cutouts are also unconstitutional. The government cannot outsource to the Stanford Internet Observatory, to the University of Washington, to Atlantic Council, Graphica, these other entities involved in the censorship enterprise, cannot outsource things that it would be unconstitutional for the government itself to do, right? If I hire a hitman and he pulls the trigger, yeah, he's responsible for that murder, but I'm not exempt from responsibility simply because I didn't personally pull the trigger. I'm also going to be held responsible. And the Supreme Court has recognized that when it comes to things like censorship. If the government can't do it, the government can't set up other right. non-governmental entities to do it on the government's behalf. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The, another thing I want to talk about or ask you to share, Aaron, if you would, is um, the actual, the, the granule with some granularity. In your case, this wasn't some sort of ethereal that the Biden administration or that the government or that CISA was saying, yeah, you know, don't let people, let, you know, people talk about ivermectin. They actually had a list. They were targeting individuals, That's right. it, it, That's right. certain, you know, accounts. Talk a little bit about this. This wasn't kind of an ethereal in general. We shouldn't let people, you know, yeah, yeah. think that masks are bad. Yeah. Yeah. So there was some of that general stuff to kind of attempt at narrative mm -hmm. control. Anyone who questions this or anyone who questions that policy, you should try to, you know, you should remove them or, or, or tag them or penalize them. But you're exactly right, Kelly. There was, I wrote a piece called the White House COVID Censorship machine for the Wall Street Journal, where I described the back and forth between a guy named Rob Flaherty, 
director of digital communications at the White House and a senior executive at Facebook. And Flattery is basically saying, we sent you these six accounts that we have flagged of person A, B, C, D, and they still haven't been taken down. And he's throwing F-bombs. He's pitching a fit. Mm-hmm. He's telling mm-hmm. them that, you know, someone very, very high up in my office, which is the White House, you know, Reed, hey. president of the United States, is really unhappy with your company. And in response to that, actually, the social media companies, one thing that surprised us in the documents that we got on Discovery, the social media companies actually tried to push back in many of these cases. They really tried to resist the government mm-hmm. pressure, and they were just beaten down over time. And this is one of those cases that I describe in that piece where Facebook was beaten into submission to the point where they removed accounts that were basically satirical, the, the people doing parody accounts right. of the president or the first lady that were clearly jokey memes and kind of silly stuff um, that is obviously constitutionally protected speech. So that's the level at which this was operating. But I think it's also important for people to understand all of this was also extremely sophisticated in terms of it was algorithmically assisted. It's a little hard mm-hmm. to wrap your head around this, but the best metaphor I've heard on this is um, Walter Kern, who's a novelist, compared it to mixing a record, right? So you got this AI that's basically searching everything that's going on online. And you're seeing a narrative emerge here because, I don't know, Dr. Drew had some guest on and that's starting to take hold and go viral. And now people are paying attention to Naomi Wolf. Well, we, the government censors, don't like that. So we're just going to turn the volume down on, you know, the snare drum. And this other narrative that we want to take hold is not organically or naturally going viral. So we're going to turn the volume up on that. And you can do this through basically controlling, you know, what people find on search engines and, you know, the shadow banning process and all these other sophisticated means so that if you're being censored, you don't even necessarily know that you're being censored. You just put something out there and 95% of your followers don't actually see it in right, their Twitter right. feed. It's it's also there's some element of it that's sort of you know McCarthyism meets technology. Um, yeah, you know this is right. a, mm-hmm. it's the ability. That's how it strikes me. And if you if you're of an age that you don't understand McCarthyism, Google it <laughs> because that we're really living this. But again, in a way that is enhanced or made possible because of the technology component. Um, I do want to dovetail back into the conversation that you and I were hearing with Marjorie Taylor Greene beforehand, and the fact that she is one person of many who was targeted, sort of characterized. Uh, she decimated her her you know personally in the uh, in the media, and there's an element. Yeah of social media that I would just sort of pick your brain as an ethicist, as somebody whose who's core uh, profession is in medical ethics yeah. and in uh, perhaps the philosophy of, of ethics, that it, social media has not done a great service uh, to culture and to the way that man... Uh, treats one another. It's been a it mixed allowed, bag, at least. I'll, yeah. I'll, well, at I'll least because that. I think because I think because of the the ability to be anonymous. You know, I'm out there on Twitter, yeah. you know, or X as you know. Wait for it, Doctor Kelly Victory. It's really easy. You're out there as you know, Aaron Cariotti, MD. There's no question who you are. You use your name, but the vast yeah. majority of people hide behind a shroud of anonymity. You know, they're yeah. you know, gypsy skittle state or some some made up name. You don't know <laughs> who they are, and they act in a way uh, that you can act when you're in a mob or when you have that shroud of anonymity. Sure. Yep. And there's a mean spiritedness um, that 
that is very, very impactful. It's not just sticks and stones. They have a way to destroy people's careers, you know, to, to, to destroy your ability to earn a living, to uh, destroy your family. Um, and, and I just kind of go down that road for a minute and tell me as an ethicist yeah. where you think this is going. So mm. I agree that the ability to be anonymous basically psychologically makes people feel that they can say things and do things online that they would never say directly to the person's right. face or in a right. mixed social setting. And that has created a certain toxicity on many of these mm -hmm. platforms. Uh, so I encourage people to not have anonymous accounts. On the other mm -hmm. hand, we're dealing with a cancel culture that puts people in a very difficult position when they want to speak their minds and yet they're in a professional environment in which to mm -hmm. do so might prove dangerous. So the very first person who interviewed me after I filed the lawsuit challenging the University of California's vaccine mandate, a two-time Emmy award-winning journalist, used to work for CBS, her name's Allison Morrow, had a, a little podcast that she just ran out of her home. She left um, you know, mainstream news, went to work for the state of Washington Parks, Parks Department. She interviews me. We talk about the ethics of vaccine mandates, not safety and efficacy of vaccines, just the ethics of forcing people to get the vaccine. That was censored by YouTube, taken down. I know I'm censored. Your video is no longer here. Uh, but she put it up on Rumble and other platforms. Her employer, the state of Washington, said, take that video of Cariotti down or we're going to fire you. She said no, oh. and she lost her job, right? So I understand why some people choose to share their ideas, share their thoughts, even write under a pseudonym. And actually, many famous authors in history have done sure. that for their mm -hmm. own reasons. They write under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. Maybe we only find out who they are after they're already dead. I'm a little reluctant to take away people's ability to do that. I think Nikki Haley mm -hmm. floated that. Um, don't quote me on that. One of the presidential candidates, right. uh, Republican candidate, floated that idea the other day. And um, while I can see some of the arguments in favor of that, I also worry about uh, a situation in which people can use the lack of anonymous, you know, ability mm -hmm. to share ideas anonymously in order to destroy mm -hmm. people. So mm -hmm. I, it's a bit of a two-edged sword. I mean, I'm I'm in favor of more civility on these platforms right. for sure. And I'm I'm in favor of you know also people being able to speak their minds, people being able to be wrong. I mean the freedom of speech implies the right. ability to make conjectures. Um I think Drew is a terrific example of the extremely rare media personality or person in public life who has publicly apologized and admitted mistakes in relation to COVID. Mm -hmm. It's almost unheard of to, mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, we need to cultivate more of that. That's really, really hard. And I, I commend, you know, I commend Drew for having the courage to do that. It's a great example for others. Um, but if, if people are afraid of being destroyed, if they happen to be wrong in one of their conjectures right. or, you know, they change their, their mind on something later. I think that's not, that's not a good climate for public debate and for, you know, hashing out and trying to get at uh, the truth of things. No, and in fact, you know, the way this this uh, show actually came into being was exactly because uh, I had been so egregiously censored and Drew uh, made the platform available for us to really promote and in a way yeah. model that he and I would model 
what is supposed to be the cornerstone of medicine, which is robust, vigorous debate, respectful, exactly. but vigorous debate. Yeah. Two, two physicians disagreeing about stuff, you know, tossing it around, inviting guests on and saying, you know, well, pushing back. And I think you make a very, very valid point that if people have fear of being shut down or losing a job, or in the case of uh, Allison, you know, losing a job, that that's horrific. Um, I, I made a statement some, some shows ago with Drew. I had somebody, a caller coming on and arguing with me in a somewhat disrespectful uh, way, but hiding behind a, a pseudonym. And I said, I, I, I will not argue with an anonymous, faceless, nameless yeah in person where I know nothing about you. As far as I know, you work for the Chinese government or one of the pharma companies. And, and I, I'm not going to do that. Whether that was right or wrong, I, I don't know, but it, it didn't feel right to me. Uh, we have the right to uh, face our, our accusers and at least I think have a robust debate with somebody whose who's name and face we know. Um, but I think you make a valid point that, so we're, we're really in, you know, I said in my open, we, we are in uncharted territory, uncharted waters in so many ways right now. Uh, we had a, a great conversation yesterday with Joe Allen about artificial intelligence and where that is going in medicine in particular, yeah. uh, whether or not it even, you know, I, I remember thinking that we'd we'd cross the Rubicon when we, you know, when Dolly was cloned in a Petri dish, I thought, Oh, we've gone down a very, very bad yeah. road in medicine. Yeah. Um, where do you see things going with AI in medicine? Do you think, you know, the conversation yesterday was we're all going to be replaced. You and I and Drew will all be replaced by some plastic uh, version of ourselves that uh, has all of the AI in, into it and knows how to treat patients better than we do. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I don't lay awake <laughs> at night worrying about being replaced by a, a computer or a bot or an algorithm. Technology obviously does profoundly impact medicine. I think there may be certain aspects of, you know, answering questions and providing um, providing generic information to patients about things that you know perhaps AI could play a role in patient education in the future. On, you know. A back and forth Q and A about how to do my insulin injections correctly, and you know what's happening with my blood sugar, with the sort of practical nuts and bolts aspect of my care. But I think that personal dimension, that dimension of connecting with someone who shows sincere care and concern mm -hmm. and solicitude for me as a person, not just me as an example of an illness. I think all patients want that. I think the fact that it's harder and harder to find that in medicine. Patients are feeling that, and they're very, very hungry for personalized care with a physician that they can connect with and trust. And so long as that's th that hunger is there, I think there's going to be a huge need for physicians who are actually human beings. So, um, you know, AI is powerful. There's no doubt about that. There were predictions not that long ago that AI is going to replace writers, but you know, you can, right. you can still read articles that are written by AI and you know, they're just, they're missing some seasoning or some flavor that that human voice brings to it. And, um, and I personally don't like reading articles that are written by right. AI, even if they may be at a pure information level, sort of informative and it's kind of readable English and it's clear um, it's not the same form of personal communication that you have between a writer and a reader, a writer who has an actual human voice. I well, think as the a same psychiatrist, is true we, medicine. Yeah. We, we, wouldn't you say yeah, as a psychiatrist, 
I'm sorry. The, oh, yeah. It, it, right. a, I think it's please. especially in true in psychiatry. But, well, but I want to say that what, what I do in psychiatry is just an example of what other physicians should be doing in all specialties. In, in the sense of that, a, the subtleties of that. Yeah, as a psychiatrist, I've, the, uh, what we're seeing, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We are seeing the very thing that was supposed to enhance connectivity, enhance our reach, enhance right. our communication, has in fact done the opposite. It has yeah, disenfranchised right. people. People are yeah. lonelier, more more disconnected, more than they've ever been. We have more than 50% of people reporting that they feel lonely, that they are disconnected, yeah. that they don't have friends. So the very thing that was was sold to us as our ability to, oh, you're gonna be able to incorporate everybody and touch everybody and reach out and communicate with people around the world and expand your circle. And in fact, people are floating in, in an abyss by, the, by themselves, absolutely devastated. And we're seeing it in the numbers of depression and substance abuse. Yeah. No, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, the promise during the pandemic that we could work and engage virtually, which we're mm -hmm. doing right now. I mean, this is great technology. It's sure. really cool. It's really great. Right. But I'm sure all of your listeners would prefer to meet the two of you in person. Right. And have a mm -hmm. two minute face to face conversation with you at mm -hmm. some point. I mean, that would be really special for them. Um, and that kind of interaction would be different than what would happen if you interviewed them on your show or, or had a conversation mm -hmm. over Zoom. So I, I just don't see human beings going obsolete anytime soon. Few. Yeah, I, I'm, I am with you on that. I, yeah, few indeed. I, I, I just... <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see it, but uh, you know, it was interesting talking to Joe Allen yesterday. I, I feel an obligation to bring up a uh, super chat here, really quick, back to the issue of anonymity. Uh, Tropical Rocket says many of the Federalist Papers were written under pseudonyms. The right to anonymity is huh. fundamental to the yeah. First Amendment and liberty in general. Yeah, and Fair there it was a time. There it was a timing issue, right? So when those guys signed the Declaration of Independence and when they talked about you know putting our our, our basically our life and liberty at risk for this thing. They, they meant it. They were committing what the British government considered to be treason, which was a capital offense. And that was a very serious risk. And the, the disseminate, dissemination of information and preparation for the declaration and for the American Revolution, you know, had to have been done anonymously. There was no other way to do it. So it's a two-edged sword. And all of the concerns you mentioned, Kelly, are, are concerns that I share and things that bother me. You know, I'm not a fan of anonymous accounts on, on Twitter. And especially if I have any back and forth with someone, basically if, if they're not willing to tell me their name and tell right. the other people who are listening to that back and forth their name, I, I really don't have time for them. On the other hand, I have some friends that do have anonymous accounts. And you know, when I hear their reasons for that, and when I see what they're contributing, which is often very good content, um, I can see that, you know, it's, um, there's pros and cons both ways. Yeah, and and I'm say, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that I, I've never supported the idea that you shouldn't be able to have an anonymous account. I'm simply pointing out the danger in it because the mob, yeah. the ability. I, I have a particular interest in, in uh, a d deep understanding of mob mentality, and the is one of the most dangerous things out there. The ability for people to behave mm -hmm. when they are anonymous to behave in a way that they would never otherwise behave That's right. uh, if their identity were known. Um, people who are anonymous are capable of doing heinous 
things yeah. uh, and behaving in ways that are, yeah. are really unacceptable. So I, I worry about that. Yeah. And when I see again that people get targeted, uh, and it's it's happened to me to to quite a bit during this pandemic, but more so to many people, yeah. you know, look back even to see, you take somebody like, this goes back, wait, somebody like a Monica Lewinsky, take a name from the past, whose life, had it not been for social media, I mean, her life would have actually probably gone on and gone forward without, mm -hmm. but the ability for somebody's life just to absolutely be exposed and, and yeah. you know, destroyed ultimately um, over something personal, I think is, is really a shame. And I think we need to probably figure out how we're going to work that or just we it society defines who it really is i guess uh you know are, are we really a civil society or not there's there's a reason that well, members yeah. of the ku klux klan you know had the robes and the, and exactly. the hoods and the mm, you know yeah. because if if you expose yeah. your face then it's kind of game over for those sorts of mm -hmm. those sorts of mm -hmm. behaviors good point it's a really right. good point i i was also thinking about how uh, we, we live in a time of rational and uh, irrational certitude, and uh, someone uh, yes. sent me a mar really. We've had we you know, the three of us are so rationally true. uncertain. They, yeah. Rationally right. uncertain. That's the proper right. position of every clinician, yeah. every scientist. Mm -hmm. And as uh, a friend of mine uh, sent me a Mark Twain quote that as you guys were talking, I felt this sort of lurking in the background. He said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. Hey. It's what you know for sure that just ain't hey. so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it's so yeah. true. A, a kind of um, uh, a kind of appropriate skepticism, the ability to say, I don't know, or mm -hmm. you know, right. I, I think, but it looks like this is, but 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 I'm open to other evidence. We've we seem to have yeah. lost that. Um, mm -hmm. but just to just to complicate this picture again, Mark Twain. Is a pseudonym for Samuel. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, That's right. So for yeah. one reason or another, he decided yeah. not to use his real name when he wrote when he wrote his yeah. books. So uh, and I don't know all the reasons that he he did that personally, but uh, he's not the only we're, we're getting into uh, in history. We're getting into parallel parallel territory. Most people in the public world don't use their actual name. Uh, they just they have some it's weird it's very uh, myself included i'm dr pinsky yeah. where did yeah where did dr drew come from right. you know well i had right. some reasons for it at the time but but sure. it's it's all, one thing i've learned treating celebrities almost every one of them do not you i'd have to start using their real name to reach them and and they're often very touched <laughs> when you actually call them by their real name right. so right. it's it's really something it, it, so the, the clock's winding down here, so I want to give you a few minutes to talk talk a little bit about what you are doing now. I mean, obviously, you've got this big lawsuit yeah. going, and thank you for carrying the, uh, you know, the, yes. the colors on that mm. because it's an incredibly important um, piece. You know, I, I'm certainly hopeful you will um, you will reign sort of successful Prevail. in that lawsuit because it's it's really yes. a critically important lawsuit. Thank you. But other than that, talk about you know you 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 lost a position in ethics of all things for raising an ethical question. Um, talk about irony. Uh, so talk a little bit yeah. about what you're doing now and what and what other lawsuits you might have in the uh, in the wings. Sure. So I'm, I have a small private practice in psychiatry um, in Southern California. And uh, but most of my time is spent continuing to do work on ethics and public policy with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a think tank in D.C. I'm also continuing to work on this issue of censorship and getting some support from the Brownstone Institute. I've got a research group 
with Brownstone that's that's trying to unpack the details of how this censorship industrial complex is working. So we we have me from the mm-hmm. lawsuit. We have uh, Andrew Lowenthal, who is one of the Twitter files journalists as part of that research group. And we're really digging in to um, what happened with some of these government cutouts and how they functioned, how they were set up, and exactly kind of how the mechanics of this operated, both because that contributes to our lawsuit, but also trying to educate the American public on what's happening. Because this new landscape of censorship is very different from you know the old days when a government official might overreach by leaning on one newspaper or you know one journal to to suppress one article or take out a couple of pages mm-hmm. from this one book. What we're talking about here is is completely different on a scale and scope. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around. So just trying to do more research and writing on what censorship in the digital age looks like and what are some of the ethical and constitutional legal issues wrapped up with that. That's really taking up the majority of my of my time and mental mental space now. But I think I think this issue is so important to get right because if the government can control the flow of information online, they can they can pretty effectively control what and how people think. And once you're in a place like that, um, you don't need gulags and concentration camps. You just need algorithms shutting people out of public debate and, and you can pretty much control the political landscape. And I think that's not a place where most Americans want to be. That's not a society that most of us want to live in. That, so that, th- this is a, that seems issue. like the, right. the liability of the transhumanism thing, <laughs> Kelly. That, right. That's where well, I that's what I, that's what I said scary. yesterday. That's what, what yeah. I said yesterday. Yeah. My closing remarks are we will have created yeah. a world in which none of us wants yeah. to live. This is yeah, not, right. I, Aaron, I can't think of anything more important. I've talked quite a bit in, in recent months with Drew about for me, the you know my the existential crisis I'm in as a physician is if I can't go to the journals, for example, the scientific, the storied medical mm. journals. If I can't trust my own ability to yeah. do research and to be exposed to know how the heck do I even function as a physician when I can no longer trust the the information to which I you know can can avail myself. I, I, it is, I, I don't know how to get out. So I think that what you are doing and addressing this issue of censorship, disarticulating the cozy relationship between yeah. uh, the pharmaceutical complex and the medical journals, uh, that whole thing that we talked with Bobby Kennedy about, the, these these issues, because otherwise, you know, it, there has got to be free flow of information, all of the information, so that I exactly. and you and Drew and every other thinking human can go get the information and decide for ourselves what is right, what is not right, tease it out, sort the wheat from the chaff, and, and be able to function. Otherwise, God help us. Yeah, I, I are agree against 100%. the clock, guys. Yeah, Aaron, we're I against know. the clock. Yeah. And I thank you as, as we applaud you, we support you, we are you know here uh, you know, uh, doing what we can uh, to sort of amplify your messages. And if there's anything else you, you can think of you'd like us to be doing, I know I'd speak for Kelly if I said we'd be happy to do it. No, I appreciate that. I mean, we got to win in the court of public opinion as well, yes. in the, as, well as in the courts. Mm-hmm. So um, just mm-hmm. just being willing to explore and talk about these issues, let your let your audience know that this is happening and, and kind of mm-hmm. what's happening 
I think that's every bit as important as, you know, what the lawyers are doing in the courtroom right now on on this and other censorship cases. So I really appreciate uh, what you guys have done. Thank Thanks, you. We'll Thank you, you for being here. Keep, keep us updated. Okay, we'll be we'll sending do. good Please. thoughts. Thanks. And uh, Kelly, I just wish uh, you and Ron a great Thanksgiving. Are you going to be in Thank Colorado you. or Southern California? Uh, do you have a plan? I will be say? in, uh, yeah, be, be in in California, in the great state of California. Great. Yes, well, stay in put. Have a have a great week, holiday. Thanks you and, too. Uh, we'll see you on the yes, other side. Yes, have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Yes. Yep. We'll see you next. We will see you next week. Cheers. All right. Perfect. Cheers. See you then. And uh, for us tomorrow, Jennifer Say, she has an exciting new documentary out. Uh, Lo and behold, the New York Times has come out and said that the uh, school closures turned out to be a terrible thing. Who could have imagined that? Uh, Well, Jennifer was one. I was one. Mark Garagos in here on Monday to give us an update on some of his lawsuits uh, about the overreach, uh, particularly local government here. And Kelly will be back with uh, Seamus Bruner. Uh, Tom Tom Renz comes back. Nicole and Jemmy coming in. Ed Dowd coming in. Got a bunch of great guests coming in here. So uh, stay with us. Keep an eye out. Thank you all for being on the rants. Thank you to Dr. Cariotti. Thank you to MTG today. And we will see you tomorrow, three o'clock Pacific time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.